TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Good evening. Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. Welcome to Spill It. Spillet is true stories told in front of a live audience. Everyone has a story. Are you ready to spill it? This is Josh Campbell in Memphis, Tennessee, and you're listening to the Spillet Podcast. This story is from a center stage event held on July 8th, 2016 at America. And the theme for the night was Lost and Found. This story is told by Rattlebones Jones and is entitled Stardust in the Garden. It's an awkward thing to turn someone down when they ask you to be their best man. It's really awkward when they're your best friend. And it's really, really awkward when they're a highly decorated American war hero. But because I love my friend, I told him about the curse. And my family, if you ask a man in my family to be your best man, well going back for decades and generations it's ended in divorce every time and because I love you I don't want to be your best man he didn't believe me about the curse and on this phone call he was he was calling me to be his best man in his second wedding (laughs) and I made him promise I was I was begging don't come on we've been through this I told you about the curse he's trying to tell me my first marriage failing was not your fault. And I said, of course it is. I told you on the front end. And, uh, and so he's asking me uh, again. And now he's an even more highly decorated war veteran who's finished like his third tour. And, uh, and so I say, if you promise me that you will not ask me to be your best man for your third wedding, I'll do it. Um, I, I don't have a lot of really close friends. Uh, I moved a lot, and uh, this is the longest friendship I have. It goes back to my junior year of college when I was about 21. And uh, Danny and I played uh, college football together. We were assigned as roommates, didn't know each other. Our, ju- you know, uh, our junior year, we were assigned together. And um, we didn't really have to explain ourselves to each other. We knew who we were. We were comfortable with ourselves. And um, I, I think it was because we probably had a lot in common uh, the way we were raised. His, his father was a Marine who fought in Vietnam, and, and my father was an uber macho NFL football coach who my wife usually compares accurately to Clint Eastwood. His mother was a ballerina at Cal Berkeley in the 60s, and, and my mother was at Woodstock in Jubilee. And so it didn't matter where whether we were in the locker room with young men who came to college only so that they could bash their faces against other young men from other colleges, or whether we were with pixie hippies who wouldn't shave their legs and listen to Joni Mitchell records all the time. He had a girlfriend who just thought Joni Mitchell was the most tragic person who ever lived. She was the greatest songwriter of the 60s, and she she missed Woodstock playing the Ed Sullivan show. She was in a hotel room high in the air, 
concrete jungle of Manhattan. And she watched Woodstock on the news, clips of Vietnam and clips of Woodstock. And she wrote a song about it called Woodstock. She said, I dreamed I saw the bomber death ships flying shotgun through the skies turn into butterflies. She said, we are stardust, we are golden, we are billion-year-old carbon. We've been caught up in the devil's bargain, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. And she would just play that over and over and just weep about how tragic Joni Mitchell was for missing Woodstock. And so I got in a plane, and my wife and I went down to where he was going to be married at Costa Rica. There was one hitch. My lovely wife was seven months pregnant with the first grandchild on either side of the family. And the grandparents were all nervous. They said we shouldn't go. They said, there's no doctors in Costa Rica. Don't you know that? <laughs> we said, of course there are. And they said, uh, she could go into labor just from the air pressure in the plane. But we went anyway, and I, uh, she was swollen. She was pregnant, and I, she would take her ring off all the time, and probably the only possession of any value that we owned was, was that ring. And, and since she had swollen fingers and toes, I said, take the ring off and leave it here. Let's not lose that in Costa Rica. She said, okay. So we went to Costa Rica, and... Uh, we came down the mountains to the Pacific coast, and he was going to be in this resort on the Pacific coast. It's a volcanic beaches, black sand that burns your feet. And uh, we went, and everyone else at the wedding, for the most part, was this really uber macho Marine. Marines are the most uber macho of all soldiers. They... Uh, they train harder, they run farther, they live a more Spartan lifestyle, they have less toys. They don't see their gun as the weapon, they see themselves as the weapon. They're Marines. And so everywhere that we went, it, it weren't just Marines. Danny, my best friend, was a, a platoon re, uh, leader in, in the recon division of the Marines, which are like the elite Marines, the, the special forces. And these six or seven other guys are the only people I've ever met in my life who just slandered and talked down about what wussies the Navy SEALs were. <laughs> and they absolutely believed him. So my lovely wife would stay in the resort, and the resort was amazing. It was on top of this mountain that overlooked the Pacific Ocean. And if you stood at the bottom of the mountain and looked up, you couldn't see that there was anything there. And if you stood on the top and looked down, you couldn't see that anything was there because the resort had been built into the side of the mountain and the jungle had grown over it all. And you could sit in your room and stand on the balcony of your room and you could look out and you couldn't see anyone else or any other room. It was just the jungle. You could just reach out and pick fruit off the trees from your balcony and eat it. 
And the people of Costa Rica have this motto that they live their life by. They, they, they greet themselves almost like Hawaiians say aloha. They say pura vida, the pure life. They live naturally organic. Not because they have a Whole Foods nearby, but because they really live in the rainforest. And so in the daytime, I would go down the mountain with the Marines and we would find some macho activity to do. And the first day, we went and surfed. And they would oil themselves up with suntan lotion and they would say, Look at me, Captain! I'm a well-oiled killing machine! And my wife stayed up on the mountain. And I got her a day in the spa. And she, uh, she got pampered and rubbed. And they gave her organic fruit smoothies. And uh, she had a lovely time. She sat in the organic uh, spa. And she sat in the infinity pond, looking out over paradise. And uh, I bought little shell necklaces and things back from the beach. And the second day, we went to a zip line through the jungle. And the Marines, you know, were just reckless. They didn't care. They had no problem. They'd been harnessed to high wires at high altitudes many times. And they just, they did flips and twists and they, you know, looked like birds flying through the jungle. And they said, this Marine is a high-flying killing machine. Hooah! And then on the last night, we had one macho activity left. It was the bachelor party. And by this point, all the ladies of the spa were just so happy to have this, this beautiful pregnant lady there that they just pampered my wife everywhere she went. And he said, she didn't have an appointment. I, I can't afford it. And they said, it's for the baby. We don't care. <laughs> and they just rubbed her. So I went down the mountain again for the bachelor party. And the Marines are doing shots and they're drinking beers. And uh, everyone in the bar was like the most beautiful person I'd ever seen. I mean, they were stunning. They were stunning. And uh, it was like all of a sudden in this bar on the coast of Costa Rica, they were just, they were hosting the Miss Universe pageant. And this one woman walked up to me and she was just so interested in my conversation. Just didn't seem right. (laughs) She had all the right curves and all the right places. She had this snakeskin two-top dress, mini dress. Snakeskin was white with like this gray snakeskin in it. And she had perfectly matching shoes like they were made from the same snake. (laughs) We were talking and she kept showing me her tongue ring, which was a new and exciting thing at the time. And uh, pretty soon I figured out what was going on. I was uh, talking with the first organic hooker I'd ever seen in my life. (laughs) Now, most people might have been a little thrown off by that, but I'm in the injustice business in Memphis, Tennessee, and I work down at 201 Poplar every day. Most of my clients had the same job as she did. 
my wife knew dozens of prostitutes that I spent time with most days. She ran my office, and, and girls would call them up the office, and they would say, I don't have a payment today. And they would try to work it off in trade, and she would say, no thanks. <laughs> we, got enough, we got enough syphilis in the office right now. You know? <laughs> I made my way back up the mountain because I already had a date for the wedding. And the next day we got up and they had the rehearsal. And the justice of the peace from town came up the mountain and we went through the vows, we practiced. And my friend Danny, he he couldn't pronounce his name because he was Spanish. He kept saying, Danielle, do you take this woman to be your bride, Danielle? And the Marines would snicker and laugh and be like, yeah, Danielle, do you, you know? At the end of the practice, the the justice of the peace, he looked at them and he said, my greatest wish for you is that you will see two macaws flying wing to wing to the jungle. It is the Costa Rican symbol of true love, and it is the best omen for a couple. So we all went back to our cabins to take a shower and get ready for the wedding in a few hours. My wife took a shower, and I took a shower, and I came out, and there she was sitting on our balcony, and she could see the entire jungle, the Pacific Ocean, and she was rubbing cocoa butter on her belly, worried that she would get stretch marks, and she was just fine, rubbing it all over, and she was like perfectly free and natural. And I was standing there wearing nothing but my towel and my wedding ring. And I looked and I realized where I was. I realized that I had seen the bomber death ships flying shotgun through the skies turn into butterflies on the zip line. And I realized that I had met a serpent with a forked tongue. And I thought about Joni Mitchell. And I thought about how I had not been caught up in the devil's bargain. And I looked at my wife, shining and shimmering in the sunset, in the golden sunset, and I knew She was golden. She was stardust. She was billion-year-old carbon. And we had found our way back to the garden. The only thing I had on was my wedding ring, and she did not have hers on. And I took it off. And I reached out over the balcony, and I put it on a little limb of the tree because I wanted to be just like her. I wanted to be natural. I wanted to be like we were in the beginning. And we uh, sat together and watched the sun go by the earth. And two macaws flew right by our balcony wing to wing. 
We went to the wedding. We had a great time. And the next morning in the airport in San Juan, about three hours away, I looked at my hand and I saw (laughs) that I had left my wedding ring in the jungle. (laughs) I'd lost my wedding ring, but I'd found what mankind had been looking for since it was lost in the beginning, if only for an hour or two. And I pulled out my phone, and I sent my friend a text. And I said, find it if you can. Don't worry if you don't. It was a good trade. And I got on my plane. The happy ending to the story is that when Danny called me for his third wedding... He said, I kept my word. I'm not going to ask you to be my best man. But I'd like you to go online and become a preacher and perform the ceremony. (laughs) Found a loophole. But the other happy ending is that they're the Marines. They're really badass. And climbing up a 25-foot tree limb is no problem. And Monday morning, when I got ready to go to work and help the ladies of the night of Memphis, Tennessee, on my desk waiting for me was my wedding ring. And so I say to my wife today, who I married 15 years ago this weekend, I would do it all again for that one hour in the garden. I love you. This is Sean Mosley in Memphis, Tennessee, and you're listening to the Spill It Podcast. This story is from a center stage event held on July 8th, 2016 at America. And the theme for the night was Lost and Found. This story is told by Erica Jackson, and the title of the story is When Prince Was My Girlfriend. Hey, y'all. Okay, can y'all hear me? Okay, um, all right, because he asked me to, I will tell y'all what the panty challenge is. <laughs> um, now, I saw this cross my feed, and I, I okay, anyway, um, so the panty challenge is when women take pictures of their panties to prove that they have clean panties on, and they post that shit on Facebook. <laughs> now... That wouldn't be so bad if you could actually spell the word panty correctly. <laughs> so that, it, anyway, so um, I'm really excited to be here. Um, I'm going to tell you all a story, but first I need your help to set the mood. Um, we're going to do something called the Princean greeting, and I would like your cooperation, if you would please. If you could place your right hand over your heart. If you could put your left arm out. And go. <gasps> okay, that no, no, no. We have to do it together. Okay, one more time. <gasps> Thank you. 
Okay, that was that was a little better, but we'll we'll get it next time. So anyway, I have to tell you this story because it, it anyway. Um, so it's 1984. I'm 12 years old. My brother and I are in a movie theater, and Purple Rain comes to life on the movie screen, right? And I'm just like entranced. Okay, I'm leaning forward in my seat. My eyes are wide. My heart is racing. And, and like my life changes in a matter of seconds. Okay. Prince pulls up in front of, per- in front of First Avenue on a purple motorcycle. Okay. All right. I see the looks. I see the looks. So let me explain. Okay. A black man with a fabulous press and curl, wearing a full face of makeup, with a ruffled shirt, a silk purple brocade suit with matching high heel boots, pulls up to a nightclub riding a purple motorcycle in 1984. Okay? And I'm sitting there like, what? He's not supposed to be doing that. But he did. And he, and he was proud of it. And people loved him, right? And I'm sitting there like, look for a purple banana until they put us in a truck? Okay! <laughs> you know, and, and like, the movie continues and it's like, there's like purple everywhere. There's silk, there's lace, there's masks, there's glitter, and then there's this puppet. There's this puppet that comes out of this little purple cone whenever Prince needs someone to talk to. Now, I can't tell you how badly I wanted that damn puppet, okay? That puppet, to me, was proof that there is goodness and magic in the world, and it flowed from that purple cone. That was the font of goodness. That was the center of the world for 12-year-old Erica, okay? Now, now I didn't just watch that movie, all right? I bounced, I twitched, I oohed, I awed. I just, I was thrilled by that movie. I mean, this man proved to me in a matter of seconds that, that there was space in the world for someone like me, somebody that was, that was different. You know, I was, I was a different kind of kid. I was, I was unique. I was special, you know, um, and he and he was the per, the first person that ever let me know that it was okay to be this different little girl, you know. And so, okay, let me give you a little bit more background. Okay, so, like I said, I was different, and God saw fit to send me to my beloved mother, my beloved introverted CPA mom. <laughs> A woman that, whose life was ruled by columns and order and guardrails, and she was blessed with this child who couldn't sit still, who talked nonstop. Like, I woke up talking. I went to sleep talking. I talked in my sleep talking, okay? And, and I'm like, oh, my God, what, 
why, you know, how could I do this to her? So anyway, so, so I leave the theater, right? And I am convinced that my world has changed because Prince made it okay to be me. I'm like, yeah, okay. And from that point on, Prince became my best friend. Prince became my girlfriend. Prince and I rolled hard, okay? (laughs) Michael Jackson was still the love of my life. He was my crush. He was my everything. But Prince, now Prince was everything. So, you know, I loved to write. I was creative. Um, But that wasn't really what was expected of me, you know? And so fast forward a couple of years, um, there's this huge desire to fit in because, well, that's what you want to do. So now picture it. I'm 14. I'm in high school. We're in California. And I'm trying to fit in. But I don't really. You know, I got, I'm hanging out with some girls. And this is that age where, you know, conversations are about boys and kissing and bases. And I didn't know anything about that because my mom ran a tight ship and that was not going to happen on her watch. That just was not in the program. So, you know, when everybody was out doing their thing, I was at home in my bedroom listening to Prince albums. So one particular afternoon, I had this really brilliant idea, right? Um, You know, I I wanted to fit in, and I wanted to have something to say when everybody was talking. So I was like, hmm, what should we do? Prince was kind of like my imaginary friend, too. I I know, but I mean, he was musical, so it was okay. It was like, you know, kind of musical. And so I'm sitting there thinking, like, what can we do? I know. What would any self-respecting 14-year-old girl do? she would make it up. (laughs) So there was this guy I had a huge crush on named Mike Jones, right? Now Mike was this white guy with a jerry curl. Like with the juice and everything. I mean, it was it, it was fabulous. And I was so enamored with this guy. But let me just tell you, he had no clue that I existed, right? I mean, I just didn't even register on his radar because, you know, I was this quiet. Okay, I wasn't quiet, but I was odd. And, you know, nobody wanted to deal with the odd girl that made up stories and just was weird, right? So, so I'm sitting in my bedroom, listening to Prince, talking to Prince, actually. And I come up with this idea that Okay, so I like Mike. What would our relationship be like? So I kind of wrote it down. And it went a little bit like this. Dear Diary, yesterday Mike took me to the movies. It was so great. He held my hand, and his strong fingers caressed my skin, and I was so excited. And he looked at me longingly with those deep blue eyes, and I could just feel my soul just melting away. (sighs) After the movie was over, he walked me home. When we got to my house, 
he kissed me passionately. <laughs> and I felt, and I felt, you felt kind of horny, didn't you? <laughs> I don't know what's horny. Hmm. Play, play, darling Nikki. to grind. Yeah, I was horny. Okay. Yeah, I was horny. Wait, wait, can I, can I say I was horny? Of course you can. Why can't you? Okay. I felt so horny. But Mike said it was getting late, so he had to go home. So I went upstairs into my room and I got into bed. I missed him so much and I longed to feel his touch. I lay there thinking about him, and then all of a sudden, there was a tap on my window, and it was Mike. I got up and I let him in, and he said he just wanted to give me a kiss one more time. He came in and he kissed me, and he's kissing me, and we're kissing, and his hand is rubbing up the back of my blue Sylvester and Tweety nightgown, (laughs) and we're moving toward the bed, and then we, and then we, Hmm. Play Erotic City. You are so nasty. I know. And I began to write furiously, furiously, furiously in my in my diary, ending with, "It was the best I'd ever had." And I closed my diary and I lay back on my bed, and I just breathed and I just lay there. After school projects were so fun back then. (laughs) And everything was gravy, okay? Mike and I imaginary dated for months, right? (laughs) And everything was great until one day, shit just blew up, right? (laughs) So I'm in my mom's room doing God knows what, right? And all of a sudden, all hell broke loose. Now my mom... The CPA, the quiet, refined, brilliant, graceful woman that she is. Think Michelle Obama, Jackie O, Carrie Washington, comes running into the room, screaming, What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And I have no idea what she's talking about. And, like, I can literally see fire coming out of her head. And I'm scared shitless because 
my mom's really losing it in this moment, right? And I have no idea what's going on. So I'm like, um, I, I, I uh. So she grabs me by my arm, right? And she pulls me back into my room. And there, on the bed, next to a stack of neatly folded laundry, is my fake diary. <laughs> so she's still asking me, what am I doing? And I'm looking at her like I have no idea. So she sits me down. She's like, it was the best you ever had? What was the best you ever had? And Prince is sitting over there in the, in the corner in a chair, rolling his eyes like. And I'm like, I'm like, well, mom, I, I, I made it up. It's all fake. She said, no, this shit doesn't sound fake. I'm like, mom, I swear, I swear it's fake. I made it up. I made it up. I swear it's fake. I wrote it down. Look, if you turn the page, there's, there's a story in there about the pink panda bears that are on my sheets. And sure enough, she turned the page, and there was a story about the pink panda bears. And that actually calmed her down enough so that she decided not to kill me that day. Instead, she bought me a typewriter. And she encouraged me to write. And my mom doesn't do anything halfway. So she bought me a state-of-the-art brother's typewriter with a built-in white-out autocorrect. Okay? I had the -the top-of-the-line stuff. And she would read my stories. She didn't want me writing any more of the... <laughs> it's like the panda bears and all that. That's, that's good. That's good. Yo, don't, don't write that other stuff. No, no, no. You leave that alone. But she encouraged me to write. And from then on, I did write. And I was committed. I was going to be a world-class author, novelist supreme. I was going to travel the world. And I was going to write stories. And then something happened. I went to college, and I went to grad school, and I listened to people that told me, you know, you really can't make a living as a writer. You're going to have to get a career. You're going to have to have a job. You're going to have to pay bills. You can't do that as a writer. And I believed them. And so I traded in my, my spirit, my freedom, and I conformed. Now, can you imagine for a minute if Prince did that? If he traded in his music for a pair of Dockers, worked in an office every day until it sucked the very marrow from his soul, from their soul from his marrow, whatever. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine what we would have lost? Nearly 40 years of music and cultural influence traded in for a steady paycheck and benefits. But Prince didn't do that. He lived his dream. We lost Prince a few months ago. And I got to tell you, his death hit me so hard. I mourned his loss for months. Because I didn't realize how deep the purple threads were interwoven into my own life until they abruptly stopped. You know, looking back on my own life, his words, his music, his attitudes, 
are woven into the hem of every garment that is me. And when Prince died, I decided I was giving it back. I was giving back the comfort. I was giving back the security. Art is risky. Art is scary. Art hurts. But I've got to tell you, I would, I would deal with that every day of my life than run the risk of dying from spiritual decay and horrible women's dockers. <laughs> This is Josh Campbell in Memphis, Tennessee, and you're listening to the Spill It Podcast. This story is from a center stage event held on July 8th, 2016 at America, and the theme for the night was Lost and Found. This story is told by Bess Shelton and is entitled After the Storm. Hi. Um, so, today is the 8th of January, and the 8th of January would have been, this today, my 10th wedding anniversary. It is not... My 10th. Did I say January? July. Sorry. <laughs> I'm a little nervous that I was talking about my cat. Um, today is not my 10th wedding anniversary. Today is, in fact, one year and one week to the day that my divorce was finalized. Um, this first part's a little sad, but I promise it gets funny. Uh, so watching a marriage die from the inside is a lot like watching a storm come at your house. It's a big storm. Um, you see it coming, and <clears throat> you're in the polygon. You know you're in the polygon. It tears through your town, and you do everything that you can to protect your house. You do the work. You do the practice. You do the therapy. You do the love. Um, it keeps coming, and it keeps coming. So you go to the store, and you buy the wood and the hammer and the nails, and you start to work on protecting your windows, and then you realize that you're the only one doing the work. And so you stop trying. You throw your body over the two little people that were created of the marriage, and you do everything you can to protect them and their childhoods. And the storm comes, full force. And it uh, tears the shingles off, and with it it takes your holidays and your traditions, your Sunday barbecues and your trips to the beach, your memories, your pictures fall off of the wall, and it's over, just like that. After the storm comes the floods, and you stand in the floodwaters. And fortunately for me, I had a lot of really wonderful friends and family members to protect me. I also had the, the scavengers and the looters that came and took what they wanted, also known as the divorce attorneys, <laughs> who charged $300 an hour to fuck everything up with typos and paperwork that they forgot to file. Um, so you go through the mediation. In my case, you go through the mediation twice because uh, that's just how it worked. And you are done. You go to court and you get your name back and you get your life back and you stand there and you realize at some point that you are in fact broken. People don't like it when you tell them that you're broken. They want you to use a different word. Wounded, scarred, maybe mangled. Broken, for some reason, scares people. I don't know why, really. It's a good word. When you're broken, 
you rebuild, you fix, you put back together. So that's what I did. So over the course of the last year, I've done some good choices and some not so good choices. Uh, one of the things I did was decide to get my awesome tattoo. I like to refer to it as my beautiful scar. I started wearing contact lenses, which is significant because I started wearing glasses when I was 12. Didn't wear contacts until I was 38. So I went 26 years having no idea what I looked like. Um, It was a weird thing. I looked in the mirror one day and I was like, holy shit, I'm gorgeous. I had no idea. I'd never seen my face before. It was amazing, right? I had no idea. Uh, The other thing that I did that was maybe falls into the bad choice category, and just so we're clear, this is where it starts to get funny, um, was I went on and got an online dating profile. Uh, So that happened. And um, I spent the summer dating these men that I met online, um, which is weird. We've been married for a long time, and the last time that you dated, like, text messaging wasn't really a thing. (laughs) Facebook didn't exist. And you certainly didn't have two children with you in tow. Like, this wasn't your reality. So I'm sort of bumbling through this online dating world, and I I had some interesting experiences, and and we're going to talk about those now. Okay. (laughs) So what I've done in my online dating... uh, history is come up with a really long, well, it's not that long, it's long enough list of uh, nicknames of (laughs) potential suitors who turned out not to be. (laughs) So so we're going to talk about those. So um, first up is Casper. Casper is aptly named for a lot of reasons. Uh, Casper is both a noun and a verb. In fact, my group of girlfriends in the back and I have used he Caspered at least eight times since we've been here today. Um... Spoiler alert, Casper taught me about the concept of ghosting. Do we know what ghosting is? Ghosting is some bullshit is what ghosting is. So you go out on a few dates with somebody and there's, you know, maybe some stuff exchanged. Um, Casper did have this one really redeeming quality and it's that he hummed. So y'all just think about that one for a second. And also, if you like your partner, you'll add it in. Okay, so... So Casper had that one redeeming quality, and, um, and then he just, he Caspered, like, all the time. In fact, he still Caspers. He'll pop in, and then he'll pop out. And I'm like, what, 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 what the fuck are you doing? Okay, so anyway, so there was Casper. And the second was Sweet and Low. Uh, Sweet and Low taught me about the term catfish. He told me he was 5'6". And I wear really big shoes, so that was not good. Um, and then there was this other guy who on our first date told me that he was falling into like with me. I swear that happened. And our second date, which in retrospect, I just went on out of morbid curiosity. (laughs) We met at the Sonic at Poplar in Hollywood, you know? I really, I really wanted a milkshake and some french fries, and so I was like, all right, we'll go, and you're six hours late, but fuck it, I want a milkshake, so let's go get a milkshake. I ordered my milkshake, and he pulled out a package of trail mix, and he started to eat it, and I was like, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm on a grapes and nuts diet. No, that was exactly what I did. 
I was like, you're out of what? He goes, a grapes and nuts diet. I just eat grapes and nuts all the time. I lost like four pounds. That's awesome. Um, So we call him Grape Nuts. I've added a couple onto the list since. I took a break off in the middle. Um, I decided that I was going to spend my winter being in love with someone uh, that I did not meet online. We had some good adventures and uh, a lot of fun. Uh, I was raw. I was too easily triggered. I was too ecstatic to be touched again, and I wasn't very rational about things. Um, The big problems never got smaller, and it ended, well, it ended badly. Um, There was fire involved. (laughs) And lighter fluid. It was actually quite cleansing. Um, (laughs) I swear I'm not crazy, but... uh, If y'all knew the whole story, which I'm not going to tell you tonight, you would completely cheer me on. Uh, So we've added a couple new nicknames onto the list. Recently, we have Pipe Organ and Colonel Mustard, um, because I got back online, because clearly I hate myself. (laughs) I mean, what are you going to do? Like, I don't have no other way of meeting men. It's, It's just my life is all women all the time. So I don't, you know, unless I'm meeting their husbands, and frankly, that's inappropriate. So... We've already been through one divorce. I don't need to create another one. Um, So here we are. We're back. We're kind of, we started, but I'm farther out than I was. And I'm, you know, the concept is lost and found. So I I do feel more found than I was before. I know what I look like, which is awesome. Um, I know what I think and feel in my heart. Uh, I've found art again. I've found amazing friendships and strengths. I just got back from a week-long hiking and camping trip in Colorado, which was amazing. So great. Um, When you put a building back together, you try to maintain its original structure as much as possible. You try to honor its original facade, although it's older than it was before. You put your pieces in place, and some of the old ones are still strong, and you should keep them. And some of the old ones are broken forever and you should let them go. You make room for new pieces. You make room for new experiences, new lives, new parts of your journey. And you add them in and they make you stronger. And they keep you from breaking again. Hi, I'm Claren. I'm a worker elf at Santa's Workshop. I make minimum wage and work long hours. My family is on the verge of coming apart at the seams. My wife and I speak in single word exchanges three to four times a day. I don't want to make your toys, but Amazon does. Amazon, everything from A to Z. Music, movies, gaming, appliances, apparel. Heck, you can buy a comb that looks like a switchblade knife on there. Get all your Christmas shopping done at Amazon. Since you're already in a giving mood, I'd like to ask you to give back to the OM Network. Go to theoamnetwork.com slash Amazon. Same Amazon products, same Amazon prices. But the Amazon sends a percentage right on over to OM. You can buy an Adele CD and give back to OM. An Apple Watch and give back to OM. A hairbrush that looks like a switchblade knife and give back to OM. That's theoamnetwork.com slash Amazon. Same great deals, same great prices. Well, better get back to work. Please don't make me have to work any harder. 
This is Sean Mosley in Memphis, Tennessee, and you're listening to the Spill It Podcast. This story is from a Center Stage event held on July 8, 2016 at America, and the theme for the night was Lost and Found. This story is told by Rob Radden. The title of the story is State versus Antonius Totten. So my first job out of law school, I found myself on the first day walking down the street, the cobblestone streets of Old Town, Sarajevo. It was a brand new morning. I'd been on a plane for 20 hours the night before, chock full of Valium and bourbon. <laughs> Great. Combo works. Makes a 20-hour plane ride fly by. And for some reason, I can't figure out why, but I can't find my office. You know, I'm in a city where I don't know what's going on. And so I sit down on this concrete pylon that I later find out is what they'd erected during the siege of Sarajevo to keep cars from driving through buildings. And I'm sitting there looking at my map, trying to sort out what's going on in my head, and I can hear the muezzin calling in the background, and I can feel someone looking at me. And so I slowly turn around, and it's a goat. (laughs) Without any skin being carried by a very large man in a butcher outfit, smoking cigarettes with ashes falling on said goat about two inches away from me. And I just kind of look at him and I'm like, Dobradan? It's the only word I knew. I'd learned it on the plane in between the volumes. So I start, I kind of shake it off. I'm like, whatever. New country, new experience. I start walking down there back down to my office, and I crossed the bridge. I'd made a point of this. I crossed the bridge where Gavrilo Princeps shot the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, starting a little conflict that had repercussions. We won. Spoiler alert. America, damn it. Um, And I walked to my office, and I can see it off in the distance. And I'm like, you know, I don't know what a Kalishnikov is, because I've never seen one in person, but that sure looks like a lot of guys holding Kalishnikovs in front of my office. And yes, I was right, and it was. It was about eight men wearing these black uniforms holding Kalishnikovs, staying in front of my office, and I walk up to Lettington, they don't speak English, and they just start kind of pushing me there. Nah, nah, nah. And I'm like, ah! You know, I'm like, I'm like where's my volume? Um, <laughs> resource! <laughs> and so... Finally, a few minutes later, a guy who turns out to be my co-worker, a guy named Jim Wilmington, a very proper British barrister, walks down and goes, Oh, mate, I'm terribly sorry. It appears our hard drives have been stolen again. You're going to need to come back next week. <laughs> and I go, Um... <laughs> but okay, I can do that. So I spend my first day as a fellow for the War Crimes Tribunal in Sarajevo, in Bosnia, sitting in a park, listening to kids count. They'd run up to a tree and go, Yedna, Deva, Tre, Chetri. And I'm looking at my lonely plant going, one, <laughs> two. And all I can think is, this is fucking awesome. This is everything I've ever wanted in a job in the law. I grew up with a tax attorney father who was a saint, a lovely man who tolerated me through many a late-night phone call, but had the most boring job in the world. And I'd sworn to myself I was never going to be an attorney. I felt like, well, I never pursued any, like, really creative endeavors. I felt one was just going to rise up out of me and be noticed. (laughs) 
and it was going to be like this really magical experience. I was gonna, it was like a hairball, be like, ah! and the great American novel would pop out. It, it, it didn't. Um, that's, that sucked. So I find myself in the midst of a recession, technically homeless, for two years, living on friends' couches, working odd jobs. Finally, I'm like, you know what? I love the law. I love the law. I'm going to pursue this. So I go to law school, but I'm like, I'm not going to have a boring law job. I'm going to find something exciting and international, and I'd found it. I was a fellow, which sounds awesome, you know, a fellow. It's like, I'm not an associate. I'm, I'm on equal footing with all the other great academics. At the first domestic war tri- crime tribunal since Nuremberg. This was the first time a country had made an effort to try war criminals on the same turf where they would perpetuated the atrocities they were accused of. And it was super intense, as you might imagine. I mean, we, and what I did you know, everyone thinks about, man, I want to prosecute them. I was like, you know what? I want to defend those guys. I mean, that's a tough rap, you know? So I was working for the criminal defense section. I was representing Mujahideen. I was representing Serbs who were parts of Serb militias. And it was wonderful. Now, I mean, I say I was representing them. That's, I never met them because they're war criminals and I really didn't want to spend too much time near them. These are, these are some seriously demented people, but I, Theoretically, allegedly, yeah, Darko was a lovely man before he slaughtered 8,000 children. Charming, great baker. Um, that actually was one of the guys. Um, but um, I never met any of them, and, but we got to work on really novel legal issues. And there was going to be a precedent that came out of this court that was going to extend to Cambodia, that was going to extend to Malawi, extend to Sierra Leone, extend to all these places where the world had fallen apart and they were trying to rebuild it. And we were teaching this country, however paternalistic this sounds, due process and basic fundamental rights that you need. And this was exciting and life was just ripe. I was the only, I had found my dream job and life was ripe. And so I called my mom and I'm like, mom, I need you to figure out what my girlfriend Katie's ring size is and fly her ass over to Bosnia because we're going to get married. And so she flies over. I get down in my old apartment in Old Town, Sarajevo, with a ring I bought from a Turkish jeweler in a building that five years earlier had been on the ground. And to the sweet, sweet sounds of Lionel Richie, (laughs) I asked her to marry me. She said yes. We've changed the story if it didn't, but she said yes. And, uh, We went, we traveled, we went to Istanbul, we saw the world, we came back, and I finished my fellowship in Bosnia. And I came home, and I was so full of life, so full of life that I immediately impregnated my (laughs) fiancé. I mean, I'm pretty sure it was baggage claim. (laughs) So there I am in this beautiful river city, with a beautiful, great love of my life, carrying my seed, which has apparently combined with her egg. That's how this works. It's a meeting. And um, I have no job. I have no money. And the only practical skill I have is on providing a lecture to Yugoslav judges on whether a Mujahideen militia constitutes a state actor for a war crime. Not a particularly marketable trade in the great city of Memphis, or really anywhere in the world, because I was that type of idiot that goes to law school and studies something that has absolutely no practical value anywhere other than a bombed-out city with no economy. 
So that was awesome. January turns to February, February turns to March, March turns to April, and I'm just watching my wife. At this point, I'm married, I'm getting married, I'm like, I got no job, I got, let's get married, baby, you know? Um, I got, um, you know, like her parents are like, wow, what a winner, you know? Good job, honey! You, you're married! My father-in-law is this very prestigious attorney from Chicago. It's like, I'm so excited. You're having your wedding reception in a chicken shack downtown. <laughs> Gus's fried chicken. Um, and I'm just watching her get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's kind of like God sitting there being like, get it together. Get it together. Stop screwing around. March to April, April to May. Finally, the end of June, I did a hit. I did a job offer. And which is good because the child's about to be born. And it's at the Shelby County District Attorney General's office in the General Sessions Prosecutors Division. There is quite possibly not a job known to the legal profession that literally sinks lower below the threshold of highbrow law than being a General Sessions prosecutor at 201 Poplar. Not only are you in the shittiest building, those not from here, 201 is the courthouse. It is so ingrained in our culture that we don't even refer to, we refer to it in an abstraction like a fancy restaurant. I went to 201. <laughs> it was lovely. You are literally in the basement of the shittiest building in America. A building that has carpet on the walls and permanently smells like weed and tuberculosis. It is indelibly etched. You could bleach that shit and it wouldn't make a difference. I show up for my first day and I walk up and my supervisor is this massively obese man named Mike. He actually turned out to be a wonderful guy. But he, he's about six feet tall, 300 pounds, wearing a kind of translucent white shirt that's just kind of ripping at the seams. He looks very much like a hyper-extended version of Danny DeVito when he played the Penguin. <laughs> he, he's a beautiful man. And uh, I sit down next to him, and I'm like, whatever, fuck it, I just need a job. And uh, he just, you new here? Like, yeah, it's my first day. You're my supervisor. Welcome to the shit show. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Because, you know, I got a little research project for you right off the bat. I used to be a big fancy prosecutor upstairs trying game cases, and I was a badass. And I want to find out if, if you call a judge a lesbian and it's true, you can get demoted for that shit. You can. You can. Truth be told, I'm like, I have gone from researching matters of international law to figuring out whether or not you can be demoted for sending an office-wide email making fun of a woman's, a judge's sexuality. Awesome. This is going great. My first job, the first judge I'm in front of, he, uh, I show up and I'm sitting there, you know, carpet on the walls. It's majestic. It's very beautiful. And this is kind of what the life of a general sessions prosecutor is. You get a stack of about a hundred arrest tickets. And I mean, these are, these are public enemy number one. We got driving a suspended license, public intoxication. I mean, the, the really ne'er-do-wells of society. And um, I walk in. I'm supposed to start flipping through the tickets, and this is kind of how it goes. I walk up there with my ticket. 
Jack Adams. Jack Adams, are you in the courtroom? And Jack, Jack Adams like kind of wakes up from his slumber and walks forward. And the judge, my judge had this great voice. He's like, um, uh, Mr. Mr. Adams, Mr. Adams, do you have an attorney? No, judge, I've been trying to get one, but I'm just running a little short this month. Can I get some? And Mr. Adams, that's okay. That's fine. We don't reset your case for two months for you to find an attorney. And we'll see you then. Okay. And he goes out. And that goes on in perpetuity until the day you die. That case, seven, I guarantee you right now, Mr. Johnson, do you, Mr. Adams, you have an attorney. Oh, Judge, I'm just going to need a little time. And that was what I did. I was a file clerk for degenerates. That was all I did. The judge was great. I remember one day I come in, and his, his favorite things in the world were Cosby sweaters and scotch. You could try, I would try DUIs in front of him, and the guy would literally be throwing up out of the car, blowing a point three. Like, I don't know, I see reasonable doubt all over this. <laughs> Mr. Ratton, you need to really check your priorities bringing these cases in front of me. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? I'm calling my old friends at the UN and in the Human Rights Watch, and we're doing a rule of law initiative in the basement of 201 Poplar, because this is insanity. And I knew I had to get out. I was like, this is not going to work. I, I, I'm not doing well with this. And the way out at the DA's office is doing jury trials. It's a lost start. You don't do them a lot anymore, but that's the way you do. You go and you fight your way up to upstairs where you get to try jury trials. And there are two ways to get there, from what I was told. Way one, be patient. Pay your dues. And in two or three years, after you've inhaled every God-known airborne disease, you can, too, can get promoted to try low-level felony jury trials. Not the alternative I was looking for. Or the other one is you find a hanger-on. And that is you find a case that you know is going to go to trial that no one wants to deal with. No one wants to touch the damn thing. And you go, oh, ooh, ooh, I got it. And I found it. State of Tennessee first Antonius Totten. Mr. Totten was on the whole a well-respected man. He was a guard at the Shelby County Penal Institution. He only had one major flaw, and that's that he liked to have sex with the prisoners in the van in front of many, many other people. Not approved by the great state of Tennessee. Seriously frowned upon. So I saw this case. It came across my desk. I was like, I want this. Because I saw the name, the defense attorney's name on there was L. Ballin. If you're not from here, other than a man named Rattleboy Jones and Marty McAfee, if you're not from here, L. Ballin means, if you fired him, it means you are guilty, guilty, guilty. And it means he is going to cause a shitstorm with the media, the likes of which no one has ever seen. So I'm like, I'm in prison sex and Leslie Ballin, this is my jam. I want in on this. So I put a note on it. Hey, for what it's worth, um, I think I've really bonded with the witnesses. <laughs> Needless to say, they were all felons, so they didn't show up for the hearings. That I, but I really think we see eye to eye, and I don't think they're going to cooperate with anybody else. And so how about you let me try this case? And five months later, I did a call, and this guy's like, you fucking serious? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah. And it, the reason they're serious is like we had four... At least four good eyewitnesses. But the concern is what prosecutors and every defense attorney knows is this concept called jury nullification. And that's when the people that have been aggrieved are so undesirable that no one gives a shit. 
And no one in the right mind is going to hold a normal person accountable for doing bad things to th- these people that are just not, in their eyes, worth anything. And it's a problem. It's the, the people get promoted and paraded out in front of the jury as these horrible, wretched human beings. And the jury goes, oh, oh fuck it. Yeah, he might have done it, but I mean, Jesus Christ, look at that person. Basically, if your victim has a neck tattoo or a face tattoo, settle the case. It's kind of the rule of thumb. So I'm like, no, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. And I get a phone call from the victim witness coordinator, and I have three witnesses that I think I can get to cooperate. Samantha Jenkins, who's my victim, Lucy, and Wanda, my dream team. We were going all the way. I started trying to call Samantha. Samantha was the recipient of Antonius's love. And I can't find her. She's not calling me back. But the great benefit of being on parole is you're pretty easy to track down. So I go to the Crystal Palace down on South 3rd, and right next door to it, it's a parole office. You know, you get a little skate in, you know, to see Samantha. Um, and I walked into the parole office, and like, you know, you'd think parole offices would be like a real den of iniquity. But like most of the people in there looked fairly normal, except one. <laughs> One person was wearing, basically looked like she'd gotten a wrestling match with a kite, and that was the only clothing she was wearing. I mean, it's like a little nipple string and then some other stuff. And I'm standing in the back, and I'm like, Samantha Perkins. Oh, right here! We're going to need someone to come with us to talk in the back, preferably female. So Samantha and I go in the back, and I'm like, Samantha, my name is Rob Ratton. I represent the state. And she's like, let me stop you. I don't want to deal with this shit. I don't want any part of this. I don't want to deal with it. I'm like, well, Samantha, unfortunately, that's not your option. The state has picked this up, and we're going to pursue it because it's a crime, a.k.a. it's my way out of jail. So deal with it, Samantha. And we start talking. I'm like, okay, tell me what happened. She's like, I don't want to talk. Tell me what happened. How did you, how'd you, get, how'd you first get attracted to Antonius? His print. I was like, his what? She's like, and she starts kind of laughing. She's like, his print? She's like, you know, down the pants leg? You, you don't know. <laughs> and I'm like, thank you, Antonio. Yes, no, I'm fully unaware that she's like, he had a massive print, and I just wanted a piece of that. I'm like, okay, well, Samantha, what happened? I said, Samantha, what happened to you? She goes, Antonius and I, we were driving in the van. We were driving in the van with me and a couple other women, and we saw a little place where he could pull over, and he hit it from the back. I go, okay, Samantha, we're going to be in front of a jury, and like, think of this jury as like a, a jury not of your peers as much as your grandmother's peers. <laughs> I was like, so pretend you're talking to your grandmother. She's like, I would not tell my grandmother about being hit, hit from the back. I'm like, that is a very fair statement, Samantha. But in this case, we need to figure out another way to say it. She's like, I don't want to say this. I don't want to talk about it. So we spend a little time. We're talking it through. We're talking it through. And she's finally kind of warming up and calm me down and I give her a ride home and I drop her off. The next person I go meet is Lucy. Lucy was very easy to find. She's in jail for murder. (laughs) Easy to track down. So I go find Lucy and I asked her, I'm like, Lucy, what happened? She's like, well, everything was going pretty well and then Antonius pulled over on the side and started having, you know, hitting uh, hitting Samantha from the back. Like, okay, well... (sighs) We're just going to cut the chase. I'm like, and I'm trying my best to elicit the horror of that because it sounds pretty bad to me. I mean, that does not sound enjoyable experience to be sitting in a prison van while two people are having sex. And I was like, Lucy, how did that make you feel? She's like, mm. 
I've been in jail for 10 years and have not seen a man in 10 years and will not see another man for 10 years. So I watched. Ooh, I watched. And it was awesome. (laughs) Jury nullification. (laughs) So I go finally meet my last witness. I'm very excited about her. I'm like, my last witness is lives out in the suburbs and she has a respectable house and she lives in a nice like suburb and she has a nice car and in her probation officer like, oh she's doing great and I meet her and I'm like I'm, I'm making up all different names I forgot which ones I made up for them because I want to protect their identity <laughs> Wanda Wanda yeah whatever um <laughs> Wanda, I'm like, I go and knock on her door. And the funny thing is, so I'm on the way to go out to meet her, and my wife calls, and she's like, I'm really sick. She's like, I need you to take Sarah Kate, our daughter who's been born at this point. I'm like, I can't. I'm going to go meet this witness. She's a, she's a felon. She's like, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. So I take my daughter with me <laughs> in a little carrier, <laughs> and I drive out to this little suburban house. I'm like, hey, state of Tennessee here. And she lets me in. She's got like a Virginia Slim 120 in her mouth. And she's like, come on in. Like, I'm so happy y'all finally called. And uh, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I'm here to prosecute your case. I'm like, tell me what it was like. She's like, oh, it was awful. We were sitting in the van and like, Samantha's hand was on my lap and her face was right by me. And it was just, you didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't know what was going on next. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, Wanda. And um, I was like, and she, and I'm like, finally, I'm like, this is going to be my cure for jury nullification. She was genuinely horrified by this. And so I asked her, I'm like, Wanda. Now, this is going to come up, and we just need to deal with it now, but uh, what were you in prison for? She's like, I was in prison for embezzling a very large sum of money. I'm like, okay, well, you seem to have it together. Now you have this beautiful house. You have a nice car. Where do you work now? A bank. <laughs> there goes that one. <laughs> So that's my dream team, and I'm, I'm heading in to go try a case in front of what I thought was this repu- reputable defense attorney here in town, and uh, turned out he ditched it to his son because it was a crappy case. But, um, you know, over the next few weeks, I started working with him a lot, and I started talking to him. I started talking to Samantha. I started talking to Wanda. I started talking to the other person whose name I made up, Judy. <laughs> Lucy. Lucy. Thank you. Lucy. Lucy's my dog. I should remember that. And... Uh, we really start to kind of bond. And it, it was funny because there was this death metal bar I used to hang out at in Sarajevo called Slaga. Okay? Slaga means the sense of respect you get when you work together on a project. It's about, it was a communist ideal that you can take people, doesn't matter what their walk of life is, doesn't matter who they are, but if you put them on a common project and work them together, they'll bond. Didn't work out so well for communism, but it was working out great for me and my dream team. And we got to know each other, and finally Samantha kind of started opening up and getting to know me. And I start, you, know, you start to feel for them. Just, they were prisoners, and there was this man who was doing this really kind of wretched, weird sex show. Even if it was marginally consensual, it was not a good scene. And so I start getting fired up and more fired up, and we show up for our first day of trial. And Oliver Wendell Holmes, the great jurist, said, the case is decided when the jury was picked. And I screwed up. <laughs> because my jury kind of looked like you'd taken Field and Stream and Martha Stewart Living and shook it up above the jury box. <laughs> and there you had them. And I'm like, I am so screwed. Uh, I mean, this is not a type of jury that's going to go over well. And... We start to try the case, and I give my opening statement. It was terrible. I can't remember what it was. The defense attorney gets up. His name is Blake Ballin. He's the villain in this. <laughs> I like Blake. Um, 
And he gets up there and he goes, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, let me tell you what you're going to hear. A parade of liars, thieves, and cheats. Liars, thieves, and cheats. Every single one of them are liars, thieves, and cheats. And I'm like, yeah, that's pretty, pretty accurate, actually. <laughs> I like them, but they're, they are. Yeah, they, they, yeah, they'll steal you blind. Um, so my first witness goes on, and it's the, you know, it's the, I watched. And uh, she does great. She does fine. The second witness goes on. And I was so proud of her. She did such a good job. She held her composure together. She told what it was like to be sitting in that van. She talked about the breath and the the smell and the sounds and this sensation of you're you're imprisoned. You're trapped. And there's this man, this raw, like, libidinal impulse you have no control over. And this is supposed to be your guard, your protector, and how horrific it was. And the jury is kind of like, the cross-examination was like, what are you in jail for? Embezzlement. Where do you work now? A bank. Yeah. So then comes Samantha, and she's so scared, this insanely, for lack of a better term, cocksure individual is so scared she's trembling. And she gets up on the stand, and we walk, start walking through it. Like, what happened? I met Antonius. What first attracted you to him? He was nice, and I'm lonely. I'm in prison. I'm 19 years old. I'm so lonely. And she keeps going on and talking about this experience, about this bond that develops. And we go through and she tells what happens. She did not say hit it from the back. She did a really good job. And I rest and the defense attorney gets up there to cross-examine her. He says, you brought this on. You brought this on, didn't you? You wanted this. And she looked straight at Antonius, and she looks at the she goes, I didn't want this. I'm vulnerable. I'm lonely. And you took advantage of me. You were there to protect me, and you made me a damn joke. And I will never get over that, Antonius. He stopped talking. I didn't redirect, and we closed, and the jury went back. About an hour later, the light comes on, which is what, which is the time when most of the lawyers vomit, because that means the jury's back and it's time to throw up. And we walk out, and the pastiest, whitest, docker-wearing whitey, sorry, Erica, um, <laughs> is the foreman. And I'm like, we are screwed. And he walks up there and he goes, we the jury find the defendant, Antonius Totten, guilty as charged. And I, like, fall into a puddle. My wife is there, and I start, like, hugging her. And I hear the judge being like, Mr. Ratton, Mr. Ratton. I'm like, yes, Your Honor, I'm Clarence Darrow. She's like, could you please move? We have to arraign somebody. (laughs) I'm like, okay. But I got to do something after that. I got to make a phone call to them and say, hey, they believed you. They believed you, and they felt you. I had the foreman of the jury chase me down afterwards and go, you know what? I didn't give a shit about any of that. And we weren't going to convict him until we heard her tell us what it was like. Tell us what it was like to be in jail and be lonely and vulnerable and have a prison guard take advantage of you like that. And that's why we put him away. And I got to call those witnesses and tell them they believed you. And it was the best experience of my legal career. I stayed in the office for six years. 
And to this day, I am so grateful that Miss Samantha Perkins let me help her tell her story and find what I really wanted to do. Thank you. Spill It Podcast is a joint production between Spill It Memphis and the OAM Network. For more information, go to spillitmemphis.org and the oamnetwork.com. Perfect this week.
Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it.